0: at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And as many of you know, we've been looking at this teaching in Buddhism, these ten beautiful qualities of the heart. We call them the Paramis. And just in terms of, you know, the stories that round out the teachings of the Buddha, these are the qualities that an awakened being cultivates that really supports the awakening process and also supports one's ability to share what one has learned. But you and I, we recognize these beautiful qualities as just like uh, the ornaments of a really wonderful human being, something like their Generous, and they're morally sensitive and they're able to let go and they're wise and they can be resolute and energized they can persist at what's useful they respect the truth what we're interested in these next two weeks they can be patient and kind and equanimous so these are the ten beautiful qualities that we're, we've been studying since the early summer and of course if you miss some of those talks they've all been recorded like I mentioned earlier on our YouTube channel and uh, what I've been posting in the chat and I think uh, Jessica's helped me do that I'll do it again is a sheet with some resources for this latest study on truthfulness but it also includes um, Ajahn Sushito's book which you can order for free and the digital copies available online it's Parami's or Parmi. Parami ways to cross life's floods. And uh, I'm just going to read a few sections from the chapter on truthfulness. Toward the end of that chapter, Ajahn Sushito writes, When the mind is aware of its awareness, it is suspended from the floods that can witness them. I'm sorry, it is suspended from the floods and can witness them with their cause, causes and effects. We begin to see things truthfully, rather than thinking she's like this, they're always like that, I should be like this. This is pro- proliferation, the mechanism that turns the wave of an agreeable or disagreeable impression into a solid thing out there. And that is the origin of the suffering of negativity, craving, loss, covetedness, and imbalance but when the mind is clear and steady enough to witness all that truthfully as a process it can also let go there is the realization that this is stress, pressure and suffering this is the origin of it this is what it's like when it stops and this is the way to bring that stopping about when one repeatedly undertakes the process with uh, honesty and candor the proliferating tendencies get cleared. If you didn't recognize, uh, he went through in just sort of ordinary English the Four Noble Truths. Just about how our mind gets clogged up with mental proliferation, the truth of suffering, the truth of the unsatisfactoriness of this moment, and its cause, and its release, and the way to set that emotion, that release emotion. There's a little bit more I want to read here the hallmark of truth is that is that one feels clear, open and settled in actuality there are no grumbles sighs of resignation or triumphs the mind is rested in awareness only truthfulness will return the mind to the home of awareness from which it arises then we feel clear and balanced Assumptions, strategies, reasonable defenses, arguments and accusations of blame may make us feel righteous, justified or on top but they won't take us to the peace of Nibbana, the peace of release. This is why we follow the movement toward truth. Through shifting from ignorance to truthfulness we can open up to a stable transcendent awareness. So this is the invitation and uh, as homework now for the next couple weeks I'll be on retreat myself starting um, a little bit into the month of November but so for the rest of this month we'll probably be studying truthfulness we'll see how it goes we might move on to the next me, but probably just taking these weeks because truthfulness of course in- includes not just our speech with other people, but all that internal dialogue that's going on all the time. I mean mostly we're lying and deceiving ourselves just with the habits of how we think and how we narrate our lives back to ourselves. Another book that's listed in the resource um, that I put out is Sylvia Borstein's book on the Paramis. and uh, it really, you know, speaks to this emphasis on non-deceptiveness. And like I said, we can really start with ourselves, like just to, you know, make that resolve in our heart. Like I may not have the resolve to stop putting the spin when I'm talking to other people but I'm really resolved to not spin the truth to myself, you know, like rationalizing. And you know, one of the places we can recognize that habit of spinning the truth or rationalizing is when we feel some discomfort because of what we did or said in relationship to another human being. Because we feel bad, for example, We start to talk to ourselves as if I shouldn't feel bad. That person deserved what I said to them. Or, you know, this is just karma. They're just getting their just desserts or something like that. But we're spinning the truth as a way of trying to ignore or cover up the yucky feeling we're feeling. Because whatever we did doesn't feel right. And maybe what we did is we neglected to say something or neglected to do something. So just be on the lookout for this way of kind of taking care of the pain, the yucky feelings we have from time to time, maybe even a lot of the time. Sometimes we take care of that pain by telling ourselves a story that isn't the whole truth. It's massaging or bending or spinning the truth in some way to get a superficial You know, balm on that yucky feeling. And just see if we can um, infuse those places with a little bit more integrity. You know, well, maybe this heart, this sensitive heart, maybe can handle the truth. Maybe I can. And remember, sometimes the truth is I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if what I did was skillful or unskillful. I don't really know whether I should be making amends or not because that truth that I don't know, that humility, what's the effect of that? Well, we are more willing to listen and feel and be intimate in the moment because we understand, you know what, I don't know. I'm not just going to paste some truth on top of this yucky feeling and pretend that I know because actually it's, it feels more grounded. I feel safer when I acknowledge the truth. I don't really know. I have some thoughts, but I know that those thoughts aren't the whole truth. So I'm still listening. I'm still in it. And we can feel better about I mean, there's a lightness there, because when we pace some truth... Onto the moment then uh, sometimes when we do that we spend the rest of our life or the rest of the day or whatever defending it because it doesn't you know whatever we paste it on like what I who I think you are or how I think you're great or how I think you're not great that superficial you know what stands in as truth that's superficial you know idea has to be defended because it actually doesn't line up with reality. And then, little by little, like that, we disconnect ourselves from reality. And this is not insignificant. You know, when, you know, each of us, we've all, one way or another, have found our way to these teachings from the Buddha. And uh, I like to think of them as very profound human common sense. <laughs> You know, common sense in the deepest, most subtle sense of that phrase, common sense. and um, But we've all come upon these wise teachings, these really functional, pragmatic, and wise teachings, and what we discover when we study and put these teachings into practice is it actually doesn't make sense to color the truth, and uh, it always... You know, in the moment, on the surface, it seems to make sense to kind of hold back and not say the whole truth or, you know, to speak truth in a way that supports, you know, my well being or the way people think about me, but do it in a way that puts a spin on it, the way I emphasize some facts over others, for example. But we're really undermining our own happiness. And the well-being of others when we do that there's real really no development spiritual development without this initial interest and valuing of the truth and remember truth isn't some concept some idea that okay i got it i read it i wrote it down i've got it on a post-it it's on my fridge i got the truth you know nothing like we could take a little pithy phrase from the buddhist teachings like Something that I like, like nothing whatsoever should be clung to as self. Having heard this teaching, you've heard all the teachings. Having studied and practiced this, you've studied and practiced all the teachings. Having realized the truth, you've realized the truth of all the teachings, right? So I like that phrase, and I've written it down. I probably have it on a post-it somewhere. But, you know, that idea that nothing should be clung to as I, me, or mine... That's just an idea. It's not the reality. And clinging to that idea is just that. It's clinging to, them, to an idea. It's stressful. Often the truth we're waking up to when we're honest is the truth. There is clinging. <laughs> there is self-fame. There is self-centeredness. And it's like this. That's often the truth. That's more in the direction of the truth. Not the idea that I'm a self-centered human being, but the actual experience of grasping or holding, being dependent on some idea, fixed notion of this or that. Sylvia writes, Sylvia Burstein in that book on the Parmes writes, the practice of truthfulness develops the habit of disclosing, revealing, uncovering, self-honesty, by discovering what is true and telling the truth in ways that are helpful. And it's really the that commitment to the truth is really the model for all of our relationships, not just our relationship with other human beings, but our relationship to all beings and our relationship to ourselves, most importantly. We're really committed to non-deception. And she writes in her book, right at the beginning of the chapter on truthfulness, that this... Valuing of truthfulness, she says, or writes, is supported by experiencing the discomforting isolation of guile. I really like that. Right. So one of the reasons we turn to this practice of truthfulness is we're beginning, just because there's more and more awareness in our lives, we're beginning to feel that suffocating isolation of guile. Like we're literally suffocating and all the mistruths that our mind is involved with. All the fixed ideas, we're fixed to ideas that we have no right to be fixed to. And that is suffocating. It's heavy. She calls it the discomforting isolation. And then the second part of that sentence she writes, and the ease and peace of candor. And we really want to start to notice, like in a moment in an interaction with another person or even in a moment uh, just thinking to ourselves, that when we're really honest, when we have that kind of straightforward candor and humility, there's a a certain peace and ease that when we're aligned with the truth. I don't really know what I'm doing here. I suspect I may not be that skillful right now. I really want to see more clearly what's going on. So I'm going to be less arrogantly certain and more humbly receptive and curious and willing to listen and maybe even, God forbid, ask others who are involved, what what do you see going on here? (laughs) What's your perception? I really like this from... uh, Somebody I studied a little bit with back in the 90s, a really wonderful, uh, well-known Zen teacher, Reb Anderson, who's actually from Minneapolis originally, and a long time ago he was the abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center. He's more lately, maybe in the last 20 years or so, been sort of the senior teacher, <clears throat> Zen teacher at Green Gulch Farm, which is owned by the San Francisco Zen Center just north of San Francisco, a long time a Zen practice place there in Marin County and Reb Anderson used to visit the Twin Cities to teach so I I got to sit with him a number of times and this is from his book being upright where he's talking about the um, sila Buddha uh, Buddhist ethics or moral sensitivity and the bodhisattva Precepts that uh, people commit to in the Zen tradition, and he's really talking about this commitment to truth. And I like how he says it because it really builds on this idea of humility—that nobody owns the truth, but we actually need each other to get a sense of what is true. You know, we might have our a window. But we need everybody's window, everybody's perspective. And even then, truth is going to be moment by moment. It isn't a fixed thing that we then can keep pointing to. So this is in the section of the book, The Ultimate Meaning of No False Speech. When you're sailing in a boat, you can see the circle of of water around you, but not the whole ocean. If you think that the circle of water is the ocean, then you are incorrect. Likewise, if you wholeheartedly attempt to tell the truth without being aware of the limitations of your vision, then your words will be a further enactment of your ignorance. If you are aware of your limited vision, which is a step toward telling the truth, then you will be somewhat anxious about whether you are telling the whole truth. Feeling such anxiety you may hold more tightly to your limited view of the truth to assuage the anxiety try to prove that it is true on the other hand if you attempt to speak the truth if your attempt to speak the truth is grounded in the recognition of your own limits of vision then the truth will be realized and you will be freed from your anxiety and a simple example of this like in conversation with another person might be well I don't really know what's true but right now this is how, see, how I'm seeing it but who knows how I'll be seeing it later but right now for what it's worth this is how I'm seeing the issue and that combined with a willingness to listen to other people knowing that they don't know the whole truth but right now they're seeing it like this he goes on and writes the truth is not realized just by me saying what I think is true truth arises when my truth is offered but not placed above the truth of others the whole truth is realized in the marriage of the minds of all beings and little later he writes the truth is not held on my side or on your side I endanger my truth to others in faith that I will thus be liberated from my own small truth and realize the oceanic truth i can never see beyond my own circle of water and yet being aware of my circle that my circle is just a circle and not the ocean i'm liberated from it and so that's a nice thing for us to hold you know as we take on this practice of curiosity about truth and the mind this mind this heart's relationship to truth and valuing of truth, and just understanding, you know, it's like so much in spiritual life, it isn't something we can grasp, but it's definitely appropriate to aspire and to align with, and often as it is in the path, the Buddhist path, it's more about letting go of something than it is about owning something, like owning the truth. Letting go of arrogant certainty is a step toward valuing truth, right? A long time ago, a community member sent me this poem, and it's um, You Are the Doorway by Kip maswi I'm not sure how that last name is pronounced. You Are the Doorway. In this moment, you cannot be the person you want yourself to be or others want you to be. You can only be how you are in this moment. Happiness does not come by emulating the peaceful, smiling Buddhist monk or the tan New Age guru promising you riches and the soulmate of your dreams. The secret is you are exactly as you are supposed to be in this moment. Your experience is exactly as it is supposed to be in this moment. That you keep turning away from yourself in search of something better is what breaks your heart. The doorway to the the doorway to unconditional peace, love and bliss is through the awareness of you, exactly as you are in this moment. In the full acceptance and awareness of yourself in this moment, you immediately transcend it you enter into a whole new reality free from definitions descriptions and separation you with your sweaty armpits your cranky disposition and your insanity is the doorway to divinity because if you really become aware of what is here in this moment you will find it has nothing to do with what you think and I like this maybe you get this too because it you know, it just makes the point very strongly that thinking, like thinking that the truth is something you can think, is a real setup. And we get a world like the world we have, the kind of arguments, my God's bigger than your God, you know, and on and on and on. We get this kind of world when we're enchanted and deluded by what we think or what some politician thinks or what some spiritual teacher thinks the spiritual teachings that are of value have to be spiritual teachings that point to um, the way it is not the way somebody thinks oh and by the way that poet their name is uh, I'll spell the last name KIP, K-I-P is the first name, last name is M-A-Z-U-Y, M-A-Z-U-Y, you are the doorway. And as I mentioned before, you know, when we're living in the way we often live, because we're anxious, like uh, Reb Anderson's passage pointed to, because we're anxious, we have some, mostly unconscious, sense that our view is limited. So instead of being honest about the limitations of our understanding, we we try to build up, inflate, arrogantly, become arrogantly certain, because it's it seems too painful to acknowledge how much we don't know, how much uncertainty there is how much ambiguity there is, right? So we pretend we know more than we know because it seems on the surface to provide some security, some sense of safety, but we don't see the big picture, like how much anxiety comes from defending and holding tight to what we imagine, what we think. It's a real setup. So one of the ways that we can play and work with this study of truthfulness is not so much like looking for the truth. Okay, I'm going to really put my heart to this, lean in, and by next Sunday morning I'm going to have something to say about the truth of things. You know, That would be sort of a normal tactic, like get on our high horse and I'm really going to respect the truth and I'm going to figure it out. And I'm going to get there before the rest of you, you know, and so it won't, you know, it will be more special because I got there first, or something like that. But again, it might be much more about stripping away this week, to and in, in weeks going forward, and just learning that we can operate, you know, we can be a functional parent, a functional partner, a functional human being, and really embody uncertainty and just that what I know is only moment to moment, this is being known, this is my subjective experience, this is how it is in the body, this is how it is in the sensitive heart, these are the thoughts that are bouncing around in the in the mind, these are the kind of mood or attitude of the mind right now, this is being known, that's all I got, right? We have the awareness of our experience, that's what we got. And uh, can that be enough, that awareness? And does it uh, lead in the direction that, it, that is trustworthy and liberating, that we're sort of more and more in the direction of freedom? And this is a nice way to, not just with the parami of truthfulness, but all of these wholesome qualities that we've been studying, Right there's a moment-to-moment barometer that we have to trust much more than what we read, what we've been studying. But what does it feel like? Is the heart more constricted, more burdened, more entangled? Or does the heart feel lighter and more free, less oppressed? That's really our barometer, and this is how we move toward that independence. We think, like being certain about this, being certain about the truth, being right, we think that's liberating because we haven't taken a careful look, a careful feel. What does it feel like in this moment, in this actual subjective experience of the body and mind, to be the one who's right? to be certain and to know that you're wrong, what is that experience like? We don't check and so we go on and on kind of pursuing happiness in ways that actually bound up the heart, heart, way down the heart. In one of the passages from the Buddha's teachings, he says, Better than a, th- a thousand useless words is one simple word that brings peace. And this is a thing too, um, it's a funny thing for somebody who gives talks for a living, but you know, we find as we deepen our spiritual practice that we have less to say. And uh, it's really nice to have friendships where you don't have to fill up that space, that you can just be together and even do stuff together, but you don't have to be filling up the space with words. It's not that you're afraid to say stuff, but you don't have to. And uh, next week I'll be um, unpacking some of the Buddhist teachings on why speech wholesome speech and one of the teachings is like not just refraining from using words as a kind of weapon to hurt people or outright lying not speaking the truth but he also the buddha also highlights refraining from idle speech now there's you know sometimes we talk about the weather or we even talk about sport teams or whatever it might be but what we're really saying to the other person is I really like being with you, and so we're going to talk about the Minnesota Twins, or whatever, you know, weather, but it's not about the weather, it's about sharing space with each other, and this is how we do it, you know, it's like a Minnesota nice way of saying, I love you, but we don't actually have to say that, we can just chit-chat, so there's definitely a place in our social relations for this sort of idle speech, That a lot of the idle speech or superficial speech is just that we're uncomfortable in our skin. So we fill it up instead of having a more truthful relationship to the underlying feeling, like what does it feel like in the body, in the heart, in the mind right now, we just fill it up. And uh, that's something we can start to pick away at in the next weeks as we look at this truthfulness. Is just that habit of being, un- not that habit, I'm sorry, that experience of being uncomfortable with silence. I mean, it's one of the great things about the daily sitting practice, putting aside 20, 30, 40, 60 minutes for a morning sit or a sit sometime when it makes sense in your life, and having everything off. The phone is off, the radio's off. The people you live with know, <clears throat> not to interrupt you. Even your pets are leaving you alone at that time. And just, to, of course, the thinking mind will still do its thing, but we're not feeding the thinking mind by identifying with our thoughts. The thoughts that continue when we're meditating are almost as if someone's left a radio on. Oh yeah, that's what the mind does. It thinks. I don't really need to pay attention to the content of the thoughts but just to know that thoughts are there thoughts are being known mental activity is like this now feels like this and just to enjoy that more simple truth that the activity of the body and the mind is being known it's this activity being known and felt to really keep it on that level the truth of the present moment and like that passage I read from Ajahn Sushito, when we can, when the continuity of awareness is uh, strong enough the momentum in our practice is strong enough to just rest in the awareness itself not what is being known but that it is being known and there's a kind of stillness and silence and peacefulness in that so-called resting and awareness. And it, the thing that's so powerful about those deeper moments of concentration or meditation, samadhi is the word we often use uh, in the Buddhist context, that uh, unification, of present moment awareness, that coming together of the heart and mind in the present moment, we use that word samadhi, is it? it really um, leads to a sense of independence, non-dependence. But non-dependence even in the experience of the mind not grasping, not identifying, with its thoughts, the meaning that it, the thoughts provide or construct. doesn't mean, again, samadhi doesn't mean there aren't any thoughts in the mind. It means that the mind isn't neurotically trying to hold to the meaning, identifying with the meaning that the thoughts construct. Thoughts are there, they may be useful thoughts, they may be silly thoughts or even despicable thoughts but they're just thoughts. And the meaning those thoughts construct, the mind is not identified, not attached, not trying to extract something from the ideas, not trying to get some ground or some meaning that it owns. That part of the mind has gone quiet, the the part of the mind that wants to feed on the meaning that thoughts construct. And that's the peace, the stillness, the silence that we experience in deeper states of meditation doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of activity in the body and the mind around us. It just means that that particular part of the mind that we could simply call the grasping mind, the craving mind, has gone quiet. That's actually the definition for the, you know, some of you Who've been around know that the phrase the fourth jhana, the, the sort of culmination of a concentrated, unified mind, the fourth jhana, it's called. It's really defined by craving having gone quiet. No craving is active. There still may be the latent tendency for the mind to crave to grasp, but it's temporarily quiet. So, then our subjective experience in that deep concentrated state this is the mind that is free of craving, including craving for meaning, like the meaning that I'm having a good sit, right? Not even craving, not even holding to that meaning, not the mind not dependent on conceptual meaning. And this uh we'll learn something about this in our work on truthfulness, because we're going to have to transition from truth being ideas that we find very useful, and Of course, there are ideas like the Buddhist teachings, they're ideas, right, And some of those ideas are very useful and can be used pragmatically to develop our practice. They're as what we call in the Buddhist tradition, a raft that we use. And then when we get across the flood, we don't pick up and carry the raft. So we use the idea skillfully, as a skillful means, to show up in the present moment. Like even the idea, mindful awareness is a good thing, (laughs) being present is a good thing, right? Those are ideas. But we don't cling to it like, you know what? I think being mindful is the most important thing in the whole world. What do you think? (laughs) well, I think my idea is better than your idea, right? That's not the point of that idea that mindfulness is a good thing. The way to use that idea that mindfulness is a good thing is, well, how about now? (laughs) What does it mean to be mindful now? What is that experience? So to actually use the idea as a jumping-off point to have a more honest, truthful connection with the present moment. Oh yeah, the present moment is this experience being felt, being numb. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. It's so simple and it's so stripped down from what we normally impute to the present moment. So I'll just end by uh, reading this short passage from Anne Truitt, who is an American sculptor. Um, And I think this is maybe from their journal from the 70s. And this person wrote, Unless we are very, very careful, we doom each other by holding on to images of one another based on preconceptions that are in turn based on indifference to what is other than ourselves. This indifference can be, in its extreme, a form of murder. And seems to me a rather common phenomenon. We claim autonomy for ourselves, and forget that in doing so, in so doing, we can fall into to the tyranny of defining other people um, as we would like them to be. By focusing on what we choose to acknowledge in them, we impose an insidious control on them. I've noticed that I have to pay careful attention in order to listen to others with an openness that allows them to be as they are or as they think themselves to be. The shutters of my mind habitually flip open and click shut and these little snaps form into patterns I arrange for myself. The opposite of this inattention is love, is the honoring of others in a way that grants them the grace of their own autonomy and allows mutual discovery. So this can be another facet of our work this week and the next couple weeks. It's like when you're interacting with another person, just notice the difference between that imposition of who you think, that truth of who you think they are that you've been clinging to, versus a kind of more profound receptivity curiosity Yeah, just like who is what am I receiving what is this person sharing what are their needs how do they want to manifest how can I meet them just that profound curiosity and especially with those relationships like your cat your dog that we just unconsciously think we really know I've seen everything there is to see about this pet you know or our partners, or our siblings, or these long-time relationships, we often have stopped really showing up. We've stopped being interested in the truth of the moment because we're arrogantly certain we know who they are. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org.